Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Thrive Neurosport podcast series. It's hosted by myself, Katie Mitchell. I am a PhD researcher, registered physiotherapist, and certified athletic therapist. And on this podcast, we're going to be discussing the latest research in concussion education, management, and rehabilitation to thrive on in sport and life. Today, I'm really excited uh, to have uh, our guest and my, luckily to call my friend as well, uh, Dr. Joanna Hurtabies. Uh, she is a PhD clinician. Uh, she completed her master's uh, certification in athletic therapy, graduate diploma in neuroscience, and PhD in kinesiology and health science from York University. Our area of expertise in sport-related concussion, more specifically the behavioral effects of concussion history, motor control, and neuroscience. She is now an instructor in athletic and exercise therapy at Camosun College, really jealous of her moving out west, <laughs> as she was previously an instructor at the University of Winnipeg in their Department of Athletic Therapy. So all around, she is a rock star. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about her journey through her PhD and the research that she conducted there, and as well, her kind of bridging that into her career as a academic instructor. Welcome, Joe. I'm so glad to have you. Hello. <laughs> so I thought we would just start talking about kind of how you got into, um, I guess, your research and sort of developed your passion for neuroscience. Uh, as you have your uh, Dr. Neuroscience handle now, um, and we'll sort of talk about where how that journey occurred and how you've uh, come to where you are today. Uh, yeah, so um, I like to tell people I kind of just fell into this. Um, it wasn't something I, you know, in high school thought I would be here or planned this route in my life, but um, I don't think I could have picked a better route for myself. So I first kind of got introduced to neuroscience. Um, and this area of motor control in my uh, master's degree at York. So I was just taking some grad courses and I ended up taking this neuroscience course and I fell in love with it. Um, and I fell in love with the instructor as well. And they, she was, you know, presented it in such an interesting way to me. And so at the same time, I was actually still taking my athletic therapy uh, designation. 
so I was still applying and kind of working towards that goal and that goal set um, and any kind of medical profession. And so as an athletic therapist, I, you know, I'm on the sideline with a lot of the teams and I work a lot of football in, in my past, especially. And one of the most frustrating things for me was, was concussions because I felt like I couldn't help my athletes, right? So if my athlete sprains their ankle, I can assess it. I can usually give a pretty good uh, idea to the athlete on what their recovery is going to look like, when they're going to get back, and, and what they need to do along that path and how to get the best outcome for them. Concussions is just such a wild west out there that I felt like I couldn't help my athletes. I couldn't answer their questions. Um, and that was really frustrating to me as an athletic therapist. So um, when I finished all my master's and my athletic therapy, I was kind of presented the opportunity to continue researching uh, specifically concussions with motor control uh, at York University and do my PhD. And so um, the opportunity was there and it kind of spoke to two different interests that I really had. And my supervisor for my PhD really loved that I was a clinician. She thought that I brought something different to the research table. Um, and that was important to me as well. So that kind of drove me into starting the kind of the research aspect and starting my PhD. Yeah, and this is where I think our paths really kind of parallel with each other of how we actually got into to research, because um, I don't think either of us really saw us doing this at a younger age but uh, kind of our clinical interests and questions sort of drove us there. So um, why don't you talk a little bit about kind of the initial research you got involved with, uh, with uh, Lauren Sergio and um, just sort of like your initial projects and kind of what the results of those projects were. Uh, so my initial project that I literally jumped into, I, I even started it before my PhD started, was I did this project um, it was looking at motor control behavior. So looking at uh, kind of like reaction time, movement time. Um, and I got to be able to do this with the uh, NHL draft prospects. So that was really interesting to be able to, to go to the NHL camps and uh, test some of these really elite athletes on how they're performing. Um, and we looked at those who were healthy and those who had uh, history, previous history of concussion. So all these athletes are asymptomatic they're cleared they're ready to go and they're ready to return to play um so from that we kind of found that actually you know we could still find if we did really complex testing we were able to find uh, a few deficits with these elite athletes who had history of concussion and that was a really new result that you know we're saying hey even though they're clinically recovered we can still find a few of these deficits um we had done this similar research in the lab previously with uh, high school level or uh, children. And we actually did not, we found a lot more deficits with those. We weren't finding the same level of deficits with elite level athletes. So that kind of led us to, to kind of question like the skill level have a role to play in how, uh, how we're seeing these deficits after a concussion and, and how long do these deficits last and, that kind of led to a lot of questions on what's really going on in the brain. Like what's going on from a motor control perspective, right? So behaviorally, we can look at all these things, but and, and we make kind of these um, knowledgeable um, assumptions about what's going on in the brain, but we don't actually see it, right? We're, we, we're using kind of previous knowledge to, to, to figure that out. Uh, so that kind of led us to kind of my next kind of 
big area of focus that I spent most of my time on was looking at neuroimaging. So actually looking at the brain of people who had uh, previous concussion, and this is where I kind of dove into post-concussion syndrome. And so someone who has long-term effects of concussion um, and seeing like, are there actual structural differences in these individuals' brains um, compared to people who've never had a concussion that we can actually visually see that might help us to explain these behavioral differences we're seeing in the motor control system. Um, and so that's kind of how my projects kind of went forward. And I think in research, you kind of see that uh, when you're doing a research project, you typically end with like a bazillion que more questions than when you started. And that's how research kind of works is that you have all these new questions that you need to answer. And then you, you keep kind of going along and you, you bridge in all these different areas of trying to figure out um, the answers to the questions you've, you've created for yourself. Yeah, for sure. I know exactly how that works. Um, it was interesting because even when we initially met, we kind of—I remember having this big conversation about how we wanted to create more robust testing to be able to match the demands and kind of the experience level of more elite level trained athletes. And uh, it's it's kind of continued on that pathway throughout even uh, my own research, where I've seen differences in just like the performance on certain tasks when someone is more highly trained in sort of different perceptual uh, paradigms, for example, being able to use like those visual motor skills um, that are trained in sport along the line. So that last part you're talking about where you kind of brought in the neuroimaging, um, I remember this study because we did the cognitive motor integration task. Uh, and if you could explain a little bit what that task looks like, uh, mm -hmm. and then you were linking it actually to the MRI imaging that you did to actually see if you know they correlated in performance, which was really interesting. Yeah, so uh, I can't take credit for designing this task. This was designed by my PhD supervisor before I, I got into the lab. So I just wanna premise this, that this, uh, this task had been really well developed before I stepped in. So it developed, uh, and I mean like, you can go back, I'm sure there was monkey studies, I don't really know, that wasn't really my, uh, area, right? So this had been really well developed in healthy individuals. So we know that this task worked. Um, and we know what areas of this brain this task was already targeting. So when I came in, I was able to use it clinically, which is, I think, really important for people to understand that these tasks take a really long time to develop to understand really what's going on in the brain. So we, so my supervisor had developed this task and we named it BIRDIE, which stands for Brain Dysfunction Indicator. And it tests cognitive motor integration. So uh, for people that don't, don't know what that is, it's basically thinking and moving at the same time. So a lot of times in research, we do uh, cognition and we do um, motor as two, two separate um, silos, right? So I know, Katie, you've talked about this before, right? So there's a lot of tests that look just at cognitive and there's a lot of, of tests that look just at motor control, right? Balance, coordination, uh, but there's really not anything that integrates these two and life really we integrate these two sport we definitely integrate these two uh, so why are we testing them in these silos it's not really real real world application so this task was literally just a reaching like slide your finger on a screen like you would on a tablet like not really a complex task from a motor perspective but still targeting those motor areas in the brain so this task had a few different um, conditions so one was just simply, if a target showed up, you would just slide your finger 
to the target. So you're looking at it, you can see it come up, you just move your finger as fast as possible. That's simple reaction time, really, really simple task, purely motor. We don't really have to think about it very much. It's innate for us to do that. Um, and then we had developed a really complex task. So we would be looking at a screen in front of us, but actually moving our hands on a different plane. So down here, um, and then when the cue showed up on the left-hand side, we'd actually have to move our finger to the right side. It's the opposite direction in order to get to the right spot. So we're actually gonna have to flip everything. So I always use examples, right? So if you um, are a PC computer user and also you try to go on a Mac and you have to slide the opposite way on those stupid mouse pads, and like the net of cursing you do because you just can't figure that out. That's because that's really complex for us. We now have to start thinking, okay, I'm on a Mac. I need to like move up to move down. And we actually have to start thinking about what we're doing. And so um, when that happens, that's, that's cognitive motor integration. So we had created this really simplistic task to target those areas of the brain um, in order to see what was going on. And so what we found is that when we do just simple tasks, we don't see these differences. We're not noticing anything. But when we start integrating this cognition, we start making them think about the movements they're doing, that's when we're starting to see these behavioral deficits come up. Yeah, definitely. That was, I remember doing that task. It was pretty complex. Like it sounds simple to do and then you try it and you make all these errors. Um, and so some of the findings that you guys, I was looking at the papers today, but the, uh, was partly like the accuracy of those movements. So there was like more variability in the accuracy that you guys uh, found in that. And also just like the, was it um, reaction time a little bit too? Like the actual time it took to get to the target? Uh, yeah, so um, it, de it depends on the group that we were we were testing, what we kind of found. So, I just, so I'm gonna try to like, and so, so when you're looking at the hockey players, yeah, we found minor differences in reaction time and, and um, a little bit in accuracy as well, but uh, reaction time was the bigger one that we found things in. Um, so, but, but again, I wanna point out that in comparison to let's say the, the high school or varsity level athletes, they had um, a lot larger differences in reaction time and accuracy. And in the children, there was even like, I think there was movement time, that was not my study, but movement time was also affected. So they had three areas in which they were impacted. Um, and so we, we know that like, Hey, and, and the interesting thing for us is that varsity level athletes and these hockey players we're testing are actually the same age. So it's not an age development thing. It's definitely a skill development aspect. Um, and so, um, again, I like to tell people, you know, I, I don't play hockey at all. Like I don't skate. I don't know how to do anything. If you put me on the ice and ask me to do, I don't know, I go around with pylons and shoot a puck, the amount of brain power that will take me to do that is significant. Like I will be struggling like you wouldn't believe. Um, so if you give me a concussion, even months later, like you probably still be able to see these deficits really easily. But if you have an elite athlete, take any of those NHL players out there and ask them to do that, they can do that with their eyes closed, skate backwards, I don't care. They, no problems doing that. So if you give them a concussion, and then do that test again, they're going to be like, I can do this if I'm half asleep. Like, it doesn't matter that I don't have the brain power anymore to do this. So I think we really need to adjust kind of our expectations and how we're testing people and motor control um, from, from a clinical perspective. And that's really what my studies were kind of looking at. 
Yeah, so looking at more of like a spectrum of training experience of like, you know, if you're looking and particularly with those adolescents and children, likely that the de like development of those neural areas wasn't quite up to where like and uh, some of them could be further ahead than others. So there's variance in just the development there. So there's usually a lot more of that found. And I found that similar with uh, some of my work as well. And then it kind of levels out where everyone's sort of on the same playing field and then you get into the varsity and professional age groups. But um, it's interesting. I like I love that example. Like I always talk about stick handling of where like a, a novice stick handler is going to have to look at the puck the whole time, whereas an expert hockey player is going to be able to see the ice and see like you know their teammates their defender kind of make decisions and have that like bigger attentional reserve to perform tasks because they don't have to focus so much on like the rudimentary motor task of stick handling for them because they've got so much experience for it so 100% agree with that I think it's uh that was really awesome work that you did um now in the groups uh we looked at the post-concussion syndrome with the imaging um do you want to touch a little bit on kind of what you guys found with with that and kind of correlating it to that cognitive motor integration task? Yeah, so so this, uh, I'm gonna, I don't know how much I can say about this. So this project was uh, um, quite a lengthy project. So imaging is not something that you take on lightly. It's, uh, <laughs> um, and so I actually chose to do females with post-concussion syndrome. And I chose this for a few reasons, one, uh, in the literature, females have been shown to be more likely to have post-concussion syndrome. So we chose to, to focus on females um, simply because we thought we'd be able to get more participants. Um, and they are affected more from a clinical perspective, who we see in the clinic more frequently. Don't know if that's true or not, and just that's what literature is saying. Uh, we, we did want to do both uh, males and females in one study simply because I only could have so many. Um, and that's another confounding factor. So males and brain, uh, females' brains do differ. Um, so I didn't want that as a confounding factor in my study. So I chose uh, females, and we wanted to look at post-concussion syndrome. We actually chose that one because, uh, you know, we thought, hey, if we're going to see these neurological changes in the brain, we figured we'd probably see them most likely in post-concussion syndrome because they don't have symptoms for a week. They have symptoms for quite a long time. So if there's going to be structural changes, it's probably going to be in this group. That was our theory when we went in and decided to start looking at this group. So interestingly, we did not find the same amount of behavioral changes between a healthy group and post-concussion syndrome. And so just speaking behaviorally, that this was a really weird finding to me. I thought, hey, like, why are we not seeing these um, huge differences in, in a behavioral task. And uh, we sat kind of, you know, as a lab, we kind of discussed findings that are unusual and, and discuss why this might be. And it could just be because I had um, a small group. So statistically speaking, I didn't necessarily have the power to find these differences. And I don't really want to get into statistics today, but it could just be my numbers. Um, but it could also just be that, um, so, um, you know, my, my post-concussion syndrome group just had so much variability. Some performed well, some performed horribly, some actually performed really good. So it, it kind of really skewed my numbers. So it was really hard to know because they were so all over the place. So, um, and that's, I think, speaks to how post-concussion syndrome is. We put it in a box, but it's so complex that for me to know that these post-concussion syndrome individuals had motor deficits I was, you know, what is it like shooting 
something in a barrel. Like I was just, you know, like fish. <laughs> thank you. Shooting fish in a barrel, right? Oh, that's not the right one. Uh, I was, you know, like, you know, I'm trying to find shooting blanks. And, and I think, you know, for me, it kind of didn't speak to that. My task was not accurate. It was more that post concussion syndrome is so complex. So I think my research almost kind of led to like, hey, we need to figure this is like so rudimentary starting that my my research is almost trying to help people understand that we need to find those people who have motor control deficits because they might need very different um, therapeutic approaches and somebody who may not have this. So this might be a way to find people who have these motor control deficits. Um, so we, we, you know, they didn't have these behavioral differences, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't important. Um, so that was really hard to correlate it to any of the differences that we saw from a neurological perspective because we didn't see these behavioral differences. Um, so I don't know how much I can speak about the neurological stuff that we did find because one paper is published, but one paper is currently being written up to be submitted. So I don't know how much I can say about that That's paper. Fair. <laughs> um, but uh, I will kind of point out that we did do um, two different kind of, uh, few different types of neuroimaging. Um, and I think, I want to point out, like, so there's standard neuroimaging that you get done in the hospital, and that's, we know from research that you do not see any concussions in standard neuroimaging. So uh, what I'm doing is advanced neuroimaging. So this is not something you would get done at a hospital. This um, is, I did a DTI, so diffusion tensor imaging, which is looking at white matter tracts. And then I did a structural MRI, but how I analyze that data is, is different. So I actually took a structural MRI, so anything you normally see. And I'm actually looking at cortical thickness as well as volume of certain uh, motor areas in the brain. So I'm looking at it in a lot more detail. Um, so just what I'm looking at is different than a structural uh, or a standard uh, MRI. And so um, what I will say <laughs> is that what this is sometimes how research works and one of the interesting things had to do with the cerebellum and that's what the one paper is that i'm working on to get published and katie knows the cerebellum is one of my favorite areas of the brain and we can talk about that uh, but uh how we found this is clear like this is like classic research like oh oops you fell into this uh, we decided that we in we did our imaging. We actually decided usually in standard imaging we don't include the cerebellum in brain scans. It just doesn't fit. People cut it off. They don't find it as important. But we were like, no, we want to include the cerebellum. So we actually made sure that when we were doing images, we could get the cerebellum in our images. And so when we do imaging, um, I'm not the one doing the imaging. I just want to make that I have a technician who has no involvement in my research whatsoever who sits there and puts somebody into the MRI and does all the imaging. And with at a research institution, if we see anything that's even minutely different than no normal, we send it off to a radiologist to get looked at. Usually the radiologist is like, no, it's nothing, but we have to do our due diligence because we are not um, a hospital. We're not, you know, those people. And the first few people that we put in that had post-concussion syndrome um, our technician was like, hey, the cerebellum looks like a little smaller than normal, so that's weird. And she had no idea if this was a, she did not know if this was a control person or a, anything about them. And we literally sat there one day and we said, 
maybe we should look a little bit closer at the cerebellum then, because this is an interesting finding that we didn't even go into looking at. So yeah, that got us really excited about kind of our research and the cerebellum. <laughs> yeah, and that's just funny and how it actually is one of your favorite areas. Um, I uh, I basically, um, I've been, I wrote a paper on the cerebellum a couple of years ago uh, that talked about like plasticity of the cerebellum like do you want to speak to just like some of the kind of the main functions that are related to concussion that is potentially affected by the cerebellum like not necessarily related to what you found but so outline some of the key features of the cerebellum that is important for people to understand like why it is important yeah i think the cerebellum is just kind of an under um represented part of the brain when it comes to concussion research uh, so the cerebellum functions, it, the cerebellum literally means little brain and it's kind of mimics um, the main, the cerebrum or the main part of your brain um, in both function and structure, right? So it has the two lobes, it, it, you know, and it, m people mainly incorporate or, or think of the cerebellum as being a, a completely motor structure. And while it does do a mostly motor, it's not all motor. So it does motor, which I'll get into in a second. But it also has cognitive functions and emotion functions, just like the cerebrum. So it has a really complex kind of, and it really is a little tiny brain. Um, but the difference is, is that it's, it's subconscious. So we don't actually know that our cerebellum is doing anything, um, but it's always working. So this is kind of all that unconscious things that you do, the cerebellum's playing that role. So cognitive, emotion, and motor. Um, and so it's big motor components right so it's involved posture balance so it has vestibular components to it um, for that for the posture and balance it does a lot of coordination so anything right um, juggling doing all these things walking uh, is really important so gait um, and it corrects movement so I always use my coffee cups right if I was trying to reach out for my coffee cup and I wasn't reaching in a correct line for it my cerebellum would subconsciously correct that so Correcting a lot of movements. Um, I like to tell people, if you want to think about the cerebellum functions from motor control perspective, think about a night out at the bar, you're walking home, right? So cerebellum dysfunction and testing for cerebellum dysfunction is literally the same as all the junk tests, right? The sobriety tests, walking in a straight line, um, doing this, that's your cerebellum dysfunctioning if you can't do that. So uh, when you're drunk, your cerebellum is not working so well. So uh, that that is the main function of the cerebellum. Obviously, uh, after a concussion, we test the cerebellum. You know, if you do this sport concussion assessment tool, Romberg testing, any of the balance testing, we do coordination testing. Uh, this is all cerebellar tests, every single one of them. Um, you know, usually we don't see it quite so dramatically as someone who has cerebellar attacks yet, but someone might have balance problems, right, or coordination problems. And it's really interesting to me that clinically we threw in cerebellar tests, but when you looked at the literature, uh, no one's researching the cerebellum. No one's right. looking at it. And, and to me, that was kind of crazy. Uh, you know, we look at kind of behaviorally, we're, we're testing it, functionally we're testing it, but we don't know why we're testing it. So that kind of spoke volumes to me is kind of like, maybe, maybe we should look at this. <laughs> yeah, it's such a deep 
like subcortical structure too that anyone who's tried to kind of capture it is potentially you know it's so generalized if you are simulating like kind of around that base of the so cerebellum is like located at the base uh, essentially at the base of the back of the brain so you could be getting other structures if you're trying to get an image of it so using something as you know accurate and sensitive as you were is not like easy to come by either so there's not a lot of labs that would have access to that type of advanced imaging but um, yeah, I, I always think it's so important to incorporate a lot of those functions that you're talking about, like the coordination, you break that down into like rhythm, accuracy, and like precision of movement, um, adding targets to things, um, different timings, so using like a metronome. That's the kind of thing where I think of that cerebellum kind of like tinkering around in the back of the brain to correct all the errors. It's like this error detector that fixes all the other movements, but also even movements of the eyes, different things when it comes to vestibular function as well that it plays a role in. Um, so let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about kind of your transition into more professional, uh, teaching and your career and kind of how you're moving forward with taking the information that you've learned in your, your research and kind of building that into your, your future of sort of educating other, uh, students and clinicians and kind of the approach you're taking for that. Uh, yeah. So, um, I love teaching. It's fun. Uh, um, I don't know <laughs> So uh, I, I'm teaching in the athletic therapy programs, which um, I love because now I get to teach clinicians as well and um, teaching the clinicians in an area that, you know, I'm a clinician in. So I love and, and you get to move forward in that, um, you know, and as a, as a student, I feel like I didn't get that motor control knowledge that I, I wish I did. Um, so it's something that I'm hoping to bring forward to, to students um, a little bit more information about motor control and just how our body moves, but as well as a little bit more information about concussion, right? So, uh, you know, athletic therapists are on the sidelines. So we are some of the people who, you know, really deal with concussions, especially sport-related concussions on a regular basis. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of, um, you know, it gets there's so much information about concussions out there that it can be very difficult to really understand what's the best approach for your patient. And, and, you know, athletic therapists do get, get taught this information, but it's rapidly changing. And I think, you know, especially when we talk about post-concussion syndrome, it's so complex that um, that's not really taught as well um, or previously hasn't been taught as well because it was so complex. And, we're really good at the sideline assessment and the return to play for athletes. Like that's what we learn. But what about the athletes that aren't getting better, right? So those are the ones you're going to see clinically. Um, and, and I think those need to be a little bit better understood. Um, so I definitely try to, to bring that forward about concussion and not necessarily teaching them like, Hey, this is the way you need to address concussions, but just kind of teaching them about the neuroanatomy. So they understand that, you know, the visual system and the ocular motor system are not the same system. So we can't assume like you're not doing visual assessment, you're doing an ocular motor assessment. And why is that important to know that that's different? Um, so some, some, you know, just some of the, the basic neuroanatomy to understand the tests that they're doing. Um, and as well as just how to, to research and how to critically appraise some of the research that comes out or the courses that come out. Um, because of the, the information is so continually ongoing, I'm never going to be able to keep up with that, teaching them. If I teach them one year, three years down the road, that's going to be out of date. 
So I'd rather teach them how to find good resources and how to critically appraise what's out there so that they can educate their patients as well as keep up with kind of the best um, practice out there for concussion. And I'm actually really excited. I just got um, a motor control course given to me. So I will be specifically working on motor control and I just started looking at it this morning before this chat. So um, we'll see what comes of that, but kind of that's my wheelhouse, right? So I'm pretty excited about teaching that. Yeah, that's great. I think it's so important to, and, and we've talked about this numerous times too, of like understanding the basic foundations of like neuroanatomy and neurophysiology to, to understand the dysfunction of it. Cause I think that the dysfunction gets taught and then they know how to assess the dysfunction, but then they don't know how to adapt it when it doesn't quite, you know, check the box. Um, if someone presents a little bit differently than, you know, they were taught as a specific guideline of like, Oh, if this is what you do, if this happens in this test and it's like, well, what if something outside of even the research occurs and they don't know what really they've even been testing to, to fully understand how to rehab or intervene with it. Um, and I think that that's where I think that a lot of this like big wild west of sort of even research and education has been pumping through the last few years, but they've skipped ahead almost over all of that fundamental stuff. And that's where like me and you have kind of spent years learning that ourselves. And so um, I think now that we can translate it to other clinicians, it's it's like a game changer. A lot of people are like, wow, the dots are connecting and, you know, even their seasoned therapist or students or new therapists um, where, you know, it's, there is so much content in these programs already. It is hard to incorporate a lot of it in as, as general kind of standards of practice, but it does, it is so, and so important, like you said, to critically appraise what you see and understand that it's not just like a, a kind of black and white, that it is very gray and super complex. So yeah, that's, that's so awesome that um, you're moving ahead with that. And uh, yeah, it's very exciting that you're now out West and uh, living the dream out in, uh, in BC. So um, tell a little bit, like talk about a little bit about what you're going to be doing next and uh, like any kind of additional things that you're planning to do in the future. Yeah, um, well, I just moved here, so this is still new for me, but uh, one thing you kind of talked about it is I am planning on doing some more educational content for clinicians. So right now I'm teaching the students, but, you know, the clinicians that are already out there need this information as well. And I think you made a really good point is that, you know, we're teaching dysfunction. We're not teaching the basics. Um, and I do also appreciate the fact that I went to school for you know, an additional four years and also took a specialization diploma in order to have the amount of neuroscience anatomy that I have. So I can appreciate that somebody doing an undergrad or, you know, th this athletic therapy where they have such a broad amount of information they need to learn that they're not going to learn the level that I've learned. Like, I get that. Um, so this is where continuing education comes in. Right now I can teach clinicians kind of to build upon the basic knowledge that they were provided and, and to build it and to, to learn even, even more about neuroanatomy because it is really complex. So you, you could do this. I could, I'm still learning, right? So it's um, something we could continue to learn on. And I think um, you hit the nail on the head where like you really do need to understand it to understand how to, to treat it. Um, and I think that's something that we lack. So I'm currently trying to develop just a course for clinicians that's really, really focused on science um, and more focused on kind of 
you know, the neuroanatomy, that the general function, understanding what we're already doing. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm not trying to throw out new clinical tools or practices, but just kind of how do we, you know, what does the SCAT-5 really assess? What are we looking at? Why does this work? Why does this not work? And we look at it related to physiology and anatomy um, of the nervous system. So um, I'm trying to develop that. It's a bit of a slow process because, you know, <laughs> um, other job. And then I'm also a contributing faculty member to St. Augustine University in the, the U.S. Uh, so I right. teach um, athletic um, trainers in the States, physiotherapists in the States, um, and uh, occupational therapists that are doing grad school. I teach them a concussion uh, course. And um, I'm also working on still publishing some of my PhD work, as I just mentioned. So that's kind of on the docket right now. Um, all my conferences I was supposed to attend obviously got canceled. So, you know, yeah. now I have to uh, figure out kind of what's next on that. Um, and I'm still a little bit involved in research. So at York still, uh, Dr. Lauren Sergio and Dr. Lorianne Hines uh, so Dr. Sergio was my supervisor and Dr. Lorraine Hines is the director of the AT program. She was also involved in my research. They've kind of taken my research um, and, and they've continued forward with it. Uh, we're working on making a more clinical, um, I guess, clinical friendly, clinician friendly approach to that cognitive motor integration test. We're making it more full body. So an athlete who move, like actually runs and moves and does a, a, a full motor task based on those same networks and same ideas of our computer task. Um, so literally on the field with a stopwatch, like any clinician could, like we wanna make this really friendly um, so that it's a little bit more, hey, can we use for testing and for rehab and return to play? And uh, so that's being done. I'm not doing it, but I am involved as kind of um, somebody who helps get that started. And so I do help with that. Um, and I'm hoping in the future, um, once things get a little bit back to normal in terms of sports and, and things happening, um, to start collaborating on some concussion research um, with some researchers that I know across the country, uh, you know, you know, getting that concussion information and a bunch of different projects. So my, um, my current position allows for me to collaborate and kind of do whatever direction I, I want to go with that. So that's really exciting. Um, just obviously with COVID, that's a little hard uh, to do right now. So. Definitely. Yeah. No, that's all really exciting. You have a lot of balls in the air right now, but like so much to look forward to as well. And I know that once kind of our research labs open up again to actually do in-person research, um, I'll be looking forward to seeing some of the stuff coming out of York that you're consulting on. And um, But yeah, that's so much information like whenever I have talks with Joe or we could go on for so long <laughs> and we we end up kind of having these big brainstorming ideas uh, and we've collaborated on a few educational things as well um, at conferences and hopefully in the future too with some some other offerings so um, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you on like social media I know you have your Instagram account um, you can do a little plug for that and uh, if uh yeah look out for your courses coming out and that kind of stuff on that so yeah so i started a new instagram account yeah um <laughs> called uh, dr nerdo scientist um and that name came because my old clinical manager used to call uh the conferences i went to the nerdo science conferences so it's a throw to her uh so dr nerdo scientist and uh 
you know, I just started that new account as a way to kind of connect with other researchers and clinicians and, and, and people who um, may be interested in this and in the brain. And I will hopefully be, when I do get my courses developed, be kind of um, giving that information through my Instagram account. Um, and if you want to know more about my research, I do have a Google Scholar account and as well as a ResearchNet account. Um, and a LinkedIn account, which I'm really bad at uh, updating, so that I can't uh, say that one's the most up-to-date, but uh, Google Scholar has all my uh, research uh, linked there. Um, and if, if it's not free access and you want access, just send me um, a message on my Instagram and I can get you that, so that's not a problem. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's such an exciting like first episode to have you on. Um, yeah, thank you again. I really appreciate your like sharing your knowledge and your insights. Um, so check her out on uh, Instagram at Dr. Neuroscientist. We'll kind of add some, we'll add Joe's name and her Instagram account in the show notes as well for everybody to access there too. All right. Again, thank you so much for listening and uh, we'll chat again soon. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Concussion Talk Podcast is presented by HeadCheck Health. HeadCheck Health bridges the gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology. Join organizations like the Canadian Football League, Track Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada, who rely on HeadCheck Health to improve communication and optimize care. Visit HeadshakeHealth.com for more. Music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound. www.bensound.com Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.